All right, folks, before we get to the main thing, I want to let you know that this episode of Oil & Gas Upstream is made possible by our good friends at Technip FMC. Now, you probably know them for their subsea business, but did you know that Technip FMC is doing fantastic things for the industry at the surface? The latest innovation is called Emission. And Emission will let you monitor and control vapor pressure in real time. To learn more, visit TechneepFMC.com. Oil and gas production is the union of natural systems with advanced science and complex engineering. Smart people across the globe create this remarkable place we call Upstream. And each day brings a new challenge. This is the Oil and Gas Upstream podcast, where we look at how these systems come together and learn from the people who make it happen. Welcome to Oil and Gas Upstream. I'm Elena Melkert, your host. Some of you know me as the former director for Oil and Gas Upstream Research at the U.S. Department of Energy. I retired from the DOE about a year ago and founded a small consultancy and became a podcast host. Today's guest is Ed Murrow, founder and president of Independent Project Analysis, IPA. Hi, Ed. Thanks for being with us today. Hi, Elena, and thanks for uh, asking me to join you. Oh, absolutely. This is a great topic. It's close to my heart. I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say about it. Ed Murrow is the founder and president of Independent Project Analysis, a leading authority on the development and execution of large and complex projects. Ed's knowledge of how to develop more effective capital projects is sought out by Fortune 500 company executives and project professionals worldwide. His expertise in mega projects is built on decades of research on the unique challenges of these complex investments. Ed's studies are motivated by the need to understand the sources of success and failure in mega projects and to identify the things that can drive success. He's written three books and many studies on his on this topic. In his first book in 2011, Industrial Mega Projects, he isolates the, the approaches and practices that drive success in the most difficult of projects. His next book, Leading Complex Projects in 2018, explores the impact of the human side on major projects and why sound practices are so often not followed in complex projects. In uh, 2022, his most recent book, Contract Strategies for Major Projects, Ed fills a long-term void in project management by bringing data-driven insights and facts to the topic of project contracting strategy. Before he established IPA in 1987, Ed spent 14 years with the RAND Corporation, where he developed and directed RAND's energy program and its research program for the chemical process industries. At RAND, Ed researched projects in various energy sectors, including oil and gas. After receiving degrees from Dartmouth College and Princeton University, Ed was an assistant professor at UCLA, where he taught mathematical economic modeling and industrial organization. Ed, thank you again for joining us today. I'm so excited to talk with you. Perhaps we can uh, begin by you telling us a little bit about IPA. Sure, why don't I? Um, IPA benchmarks and evaluates capital projects for the capital-intensive industries. 
like oil and gas in particular, um, chemicals, um, pharmaceuticals, mining, anybody who spends a lot of capital to make to create their assets is probably an IPA customer. We work for most of the big companies in the oil patch, most of the super majors and large companies. We benchmark their, their projects. We also have a large and really vibrant research organization that takes the data that we collect and tries to better understand the relationship between what you do and what you get in capital projects. Turns out that projects are actually quite predictable, um, and I think they're much more predictable today than they were 36 years ago when we started. Wow, yeah. So with respect to Upstream, and just for people who are, uh, our audience ranges from people who are subject matter experts, all the way to people who just want to get a little bit more exposure to oil and gas. So um, while we're saying mega projects, um, in oil and gas, it can be as, quote, small as uh, drilling a well, perhaps drilling a well offshore, uh, perhaps drilling a well offshore where it has lots of uh, facilities and uh, a lot of moving parts, uh, places where people have to sort of uh, pass on one, pass from one skill set to the next skill set to the next skill set in order for the whole project to come together. Is that a fair way to describe a, a project that might be in the oil and gas sector? Sure. Um the oil and gas industry is a gigantic consumer of capital, and that's because our, our assets in upstream are constantly being liquidated as we drain reservoirs, and we have to add new ones, and each new one usually means we're spending billions of dollars to develop it. Um, so our oil and gas database literally accounts for trillions of dollars in expended capital in, in oil and gas. These, these projects are difficult. Um, they require lots of skill and lots of know-how. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm fascinated by the book because in my experience in working with projects and I would have to say these would be small projects, not mega projects. Um, and the point that I'm trying to make is that anytime there's an interface from one skill set to another, one uh, responsible party to the next, um, that that interface is the place where things can happen. I mean, things can happen anywhere at any time. Generally but bad they, things. <laughs> bad things, that's right. So so when I think about contracting strategies, that doesn't seem to match with that, with that notion of that interface. But put that together for us. And, and what are we talking about in terms of contract strategies? It actually does fit together. Um, and one of the elements that's critical in, in your contract strategy is that you understand and carefully define the interfaces that you're creating. Inevitably, there will be inter interfaces that have to be managed. There are interfaces with the government and, of course, the regulators, with, with your partners. Um, and usually, especially in oil and gas projects, there are interface, interfaces between contractors. Some contract strategies attempt to 
dissolve those interfaces, pretend they don't exist. The trouble is all they do is actually submerge them where they're much, much harder to manage. The interfaces are always there, and the contract strategy should make them clear and help you clearly assign who's responsible for what. Um, I mean, contracting isn't really about contracts. It's really about risk assignment. That's what contracts are about. Okay. So many times, um, boy, there's a lot in there. Let me try to unpack it. So contract strategies, use contracts usually are put in place, well, will be put in place long before execution begins. And execution is where the challenges take place because you're actually doing the work at that time, spending the money and, and trying to get those results. So um, the people who actually execute aren't necessarily the people who helped write the contract or understand all of the implications and nuances of the contract as it might manifest in their work. And so, so am I getting it right? No, me, that's certainly true on the contractor's side. It isn't necessarily true on the owner's side. It depends on how contracting is actually approached on the owner's side. But remember, although problems manifest themselves in execution, almost all the big problems that we have in projects start on the front end before execution even is close to getting underway. Oh, that's good. Let, develop at that for us a little bit. Well, yeah. the work that owners do to develop a project, to develop the objectives, to develop the team, and then to prepare a project for execution is absolutely what's critical in getting a good result. My mantra is that contractors do good projects well and bad projects poorly. And that it may sound like a tautology, but it isn't. It's in just simply a fact. If you set a contractor up to succeed, he's very likely to be successful. And if you set them up to fail, I can almost guarantee failure. So what, what owners do and how they approach their projects, how they staff their projects, that is what's critical in generating success and failure. There's just, there's no way around it. And the, the data, you know, literally over tens of thousands of projects couldn't be clear. Owners drive the results. So what are some of those success factors or success strategies um, that help both the owner and the contractor realize that success? What, what are some of those key factors? Well, the, there are a couple of things. First, all of the owner functions, groups, that need to have a role in a project need to be fully represented as that front end is developed. So if, for example, um, the operations organization doesn't get its say as you're developing the scope of the project, they'll get their say later 
generally at the time when it's most difficult for the project to accommodate. So you, you need all of those organize all those groups in an owner together in order to make that work. Second, um, project professionals pretty much know what needs to be done to prepare a project to execute. But one of the great ironies is that the more important the project is, the less likely we'll be allowed to do the things that we know are necessary to prepare the project. Um, you know, politics plays a role, uh, you know, commitments, trying to drive the schedule out in front of the data development. All of these things are, are critical to how the project comes out. In oil and gas projects, remember, everything starts with the reservoir. And if you don't define the reservoir properly, um, then that sets you up for just catastrophic mistakes. So, I mean, I, I literally have a billion dollar plus projects that were put on hydrocarbon accumulations where production lasted two weeks. Okay, well, that's just a disaster, of course. But it's what happens when we don't properly characterize the reservoir. The problem with upstream projects is that they require a huge amount of cooperation internally in the owner before we ever get the contractors on board. I mean, one of the things that I've always felt is kind of sad about a lot of the, the failed projects, the owner project teams with those failed projects almost always knew they were going to fail before they even came to FID. So they knew they were, they were in for a real bruising with these projects because they knew the projects weren't ready. Right, right. Oh, yeah, when you said one of the critical factors is the reservoir and understanding the reservoir, you can't really control the reservoir and the, the reservoir does what it does and it doesn't even know what it does. It just responds to physics, right? That, physics, that, chemistry, that geochemistry. Right. Reservoirs are not out to get us. On the other hand, when we don't adequately appraise them, it kind of feels like they are. Right, right. And so this whole notion of uh, adequacy in the appraisal, well, we're limited by the technology that we have available to us to describe. We're limited by the amount of money that we want to spend in order to understand that the reservoir uh, and and, uh, and realize the success. And um, we're limited by the time, the amount of time that we have, which is also money, to investigate the reservoir. And so many times what happens is assumptions will be made. And sometimes they are simplifying assumptions. And so it stands to me that that is sort of, if we had a critical path for success, it would be the reservoir. But even that pathway but, is limited. But Elena, the, the technology is so much better oh, than yeah. it was Relatively just 25 speaking. years ago. I mean, <laughs> That's the fair. technology has, has really been developed uh, in ways that we could barely imagine 30 years ago. So mostly it's not a matter of money. It's not a matter of technology. 
it's more than likely it's a matter of time. And the time pressure on large complex project makes you, encourages you to do everything out of order. So by the time you, for example, get around to doing the pre-qualification of your contractors, some of the key contracting opportunities are already behind you. And so you find yourself, you always do what you've always done, and you're surprised you don't get better results, but that's just the way it goes. And that frequently is because the calendar is driving the effort. And it's, it's not, by the way, the schedule's unimportant. It is important. But the development, the data development of the project, the information development of the project is far more important. And almost all of our really catastrophic mistakes are associated with being in a hurry. Mm. So, so you said some of the key opportunities, key strategies, the opportunity for some key strategies in contracting are already passed. Gone. The opportunities are already passed. What are some, what are some oh. of those opportunities that kind of like the first to evaporate? Let me, let me give you an example. Um, one contracting approach that has proven quite effective upstream are what are called design competitions. This, or sometimes called a feed competition. This is where I hire two or three uh, EPC contractors to do competing front-end developments, okay, feeds. Um, and then at the end of that period, they give me an EPC, EPCI lump sum bid. Well, that's an activity that has to get started back in phase two as we're developing the scope because I have to get those contractors lined up as we go through gate two, not as we get ready for full funds authorization at FID. So if I don't do that, um, gee, what happened to that opportunity? And I can't tell you how many times I, I do lots of, of contracting workshops with project teams. And I can't tell you how many times I come in and the first thing I say, oh, I wish I'd been here six, nine months ago because there would have been so many more options we could pursue. Frequently, we don't even manage to get around pre-qualifying our feed contractors. So it ends up, in effect, being sole source. Um, now, I'm not necessarily opposed to sole source contracting, but looking around and understanding who's out there and who's really a viable candidate to do the work is always a good idea. So, so uh, is that the only, I mean, if you have, if you miss that opportunity for the feed uh, competitions, if you miss that opportunity, is it like uh, no return? I guess you can't really make up for that, but is there another factor that is, also is critical. And if you can get one out of two, I don't know, one, a couple, two out of three, right, you have a high likelihood of success. Well, one of the, there are a couple of things that are, that are really critical. First, 
finish fate. Don't slide into execution because your your feed contractor is going to do the en- the detailed engineering on the project actually finish feed establish the baseline for controls and actually sequence the engineering work so it will support fabrication One of the things that we see over and over again, and I'm sure all the project professionals out there have seen it too, is that the engineering work is out of sequence, the engineering work is late, that means procurement is late, and that means that the fabricator thought they would be working three months ago, but they don't have anything to start working on the top sides with because the design isn't there and the materials aren't there. The equipment isn't there. Well, that's something that we really do to ourselves. When we finish feed, we're much less likely to have engineering slip that we can't cope with. The other thing that we can do, by the way, is we can use that sequencing of design at the end of feed and invite the fabricators in for pre-qualification of, of the fabricators and ask them to comment on the sequencing of engineering. The effect of that is we then as the owner actually have a lot more control of the process. I mean, the best contracting strategies tend to be the ones in which the owner contracts separately for feed, engineering, and procurement, and then separately for fabrication and or construction. That form, which is called the split form of contracting, tends to be considerably more cost-effective. So, you know, everyone complains about, everyone in the process uh, along the timeline complains about not having enough time to do the things that they need to do, and those things tend to add up and like that. So, so there's that notion, but you need to have some assumptions in order to sell the project initially to management. And so how do, how do you reconcile those well, kinds generally of things? management... Um, If you have a good reservoir, management sold on the project, okay? Even if they shouldn't be, by the way, they're sold on the project. The problem is that things take time to mature. And we always seem to find ourselves wanting to substitute nine women in a month and have a baby. And it just (laughs) doesn't work for us. Now, part of the problem here is that different interests within the owner organization, different groups, uh, have different objectives. And the business may be looking to fill a production gap that they see coming uh, 24, 40 months from now. Um, the, The effect of that is we try to drive the speed on the complex projects. Now, when we get into execution, projects need to be done quickly. 
but I can't do them quickly if I have to continually change things because the front end wasn't properly prepared. Right, right. Oh yeah, no, that's that's very much your reality. So, so that takes us to um, chapter whoop, chapter ten in your book, um, contracting strategies for major projects. Uh, the title has to do with roles and responsibilities um, in that contracting. Oh, that chapter has already gotten me some hate mail. Uh, oh really? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, look that. That chapter is all about the issue of who should control contracting within the owner organization. And there are lots of folks who are vying for control. So we have procurement, we have legal, we have the businesses, and of course the projects organization, and everybody thinks they should lead. Well, my view is, Everybody has a role, but there's only one organization that should lead the contracting process, and that's the projects organization. And I say so for a very simple reason. Contracting requires a deeper understanding of project management than probably any other facet of projects. Well, Why would any non-projects function have that in-depth knowledge? Procurement says, oh, well, we're just buying something. No, we're not. When, When we sign that contract, it's more like signing a marriage certificate than it, than it is an, a transaction. So we're not simply purchasing something. We're actually teaming up to do the project. And you, you know, the, I'm, I'm sure in some cultures that arranged marriages work, but they don't work very well in projects. Does procurement have a role? Of course they do. Procurement knows more about market conditions than any other organization within the owners. So that's good. Let, let them provide that information. Do lawyers have a role? Of course they do. And especially, see, lawyers could be useful if what they would do is help to clarify risk assignment as we negotiate the terms and conditions. Remember, contracting is not about contracts. It's about risk assignment. So if we cleanly, clearly assign risks, I would even go to the extreme of laying out in the terms and conditions why a particular risk is assigned to one party rather than the other. So that when we get to arguing about it later, in the event that we do, we can pull the contract out of the bottom drawer and say, oh, this one belonged to me. Okay, and I'll fix it. Ah, uh, this one belongs to you. So you're going to have to fix it. I will help. That's the way it's supposed to work. If we don't clarify that risk assignment, we end up in disputes. And the projects suffer. The reputations suffer. It's simply not the right way to do projects. Wow, there is so much in there. 
So the whole notion of roles and responsibilities and articulating who does what and when and why uh, and having your lawyer help you uh, associate that so in case you need it later. I think people want always want their projects to be successful. So that's that's a given. Um, but you when things go wrong, that sort of that risk creates sort of a fear. And one of one of the points that you make in the book has to do that um, uh, contracts uh, definitely involve, they're, they're the legalities, but there's also the human behavior. And so that means human reactions and human interactions. Oh, of course, remember, so, contracts are nothing more than a human construct after all. And um, we're, um, you know, as my old friend Jacques Chalon used to say, in the project we have the expression, first we hire the scapegoat. Well, <laughs> he meant the contractor. Um, and, and frequently that's exactly what, what's going on. I tell owners, look down the, th- the list of things that drive projects to succeed or fail. Most of those things are owner responsibilities, not contractor responsibilities. Think about it this way. If a contractor is given a very well put together project, very clear objectives, nice scope has been done, and the contractor can't succeed with that project, that contractor will screw every project up and therefore doesn't even exist anymore very quickly. So it's how good or bad the project was when we bring the contractor in that ultimately will determine most, not 100%, but most of the results. Yeah. Well, I love this book. I love all of the points that you made. I love the way that you dive deep into some of these challenges and use data to um, express and explain how to um, how to take a, a better approach, how to improve your approaches in, in uh, contracting uh, strategies. We are almost at time, Ed. Are there some things you want us to, sh- to want to share with us to be sure that we uh, really understand what the opportunities are for um, excelling in our contract contracting strategy? Well, just remember as you contract that um, clarity is our friend. When it comes to contracting, what we want is transparency. Every time we, on either the owner or the contractor's side, don't will slide over something in order to not make the deal problematic. We're setting ourselves up to fail. So remember, clarity, transparency, real understanding of how the risk assignment works. That's what drives contracting success. The other thing is, remember, get started in scope development, not in feed. It's too late. It's too late. It's too late. Yeah. I love this um, analogy to, um, to marriage. Um, I love the, the transparency. So, so in, um, 
in marriages, there are, you know, there's a concept of, uh, you know, counseling and uh, trying to repair and the like. Is that, does that analogy apply as well to um, contracting once you're in trouble, I guess is the way to say it? It's actually quite difficult. And it's difficult because, uh, as everybody understands, projects are always a train in motion. They have they are supposed to go only in one direction, which is forward toward completion. It's very, very difficult to say, let's stop and get things sorted. Sometimes that's exactly the right thing to do. But boy, it doesn't happen very often. And the pressure to move on with things, disputes or no disputes, things working well or not, is very, very intense. So it's not often that we get a chance to for a do-over in the middle of execution. So given that, all the more reason to start it off on the right get foot right and the first uh, time. get that clarity. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fabulous. I've so en- enjoyed this and I so en- enjoy- I'm so enjoying your book. It has a lot of information, so I haven't gotten through the whole thing, but I de- definitely I'm going to read every word and continue to underline as I have been in, in the book there. Um, Ed Murrow, founder and president of Independent Project Analysis, thank you so much for being our guest today and for sharing all about your contributions to oil and gas upstream, especially the contracting aspects. Thanks, Elena. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Please give us a review and tell us what you like. This is Elena Melkert, your host for Oil & Gas Upstream. More next time. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Upstream podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.